Welcome to Mind the Shift. My name is Anders Bolling. What what does the future have in store for us? And how do we define the future even? My guest today is a returnee, Bronwyn Williams from Johannesburg, South Africa. She's a futurist, an economist, and a trend analyst. Welcome back to the show, Bronwyn. Thank you so much for having me back. When I prepared for this episode, I uh, remember what we spoke about last time. We I had you on, on the show, which was actually two years almost to the day. And I remember that we your book or your anthology, The Future Starts Now, was about to be released just then and back then. And so we spoke about that. And we spoke about your brilliant concept, Postalgia, and the general defeatism among people. So I thought, well, let's take it from there. But then I listened back to the episode and I realized that we touched upon almost every topic that I want to ask you about today. But hey, I mean, it's been two years. I've changed, you've changed, and there, there's a new audience. So yes, <laughs> I think it's going to be fine anyway. So um, and I guess, I mean, those the same topics reappear all the time when you speak about the, the issues of the future. I have some headlines here. I don't know if you like them or not, but the headlines are... We'll see if we go there, but anyway, I have I have it I have it here. It's like the power of people changing governance, money as a belief system, and humanity. How about that? Yeah, those all make a lot of sense to me. I think that I suppose none of these conversations about the future right now would be complete also without touching on what it means to be human, which I think sums up quite a lot of the points you've mentioned there, particularly yeah. as everyone's talking at the moment about Web3 and about the metaverse and all these buzzwords that tend to detract us from the macro trends and the key drivers that really do drive our society forward. It's all too easy to get caught up or get stuck or get distracted by the shiny new thing which makes us feel like we're moving faster but we're not necessarily moving in any particular direction so if we can kind of separate the trend from the from the deeper drivers beneath that i think that's always helpful it's at framing useful conversations about the future and not just exciting ones that get you paid to stand on stages and deliver keynote speeches to enthusiastic audiences yeah you you ask uh, three basic questions when you when you try to analyze the future, look into the future, you ask what and so what and what now? I mean, it sounds basic yeah. enough, but don't people perhaps ask themselves these three questions when they try to look into the future? Well, I think most of us do this quite intuitively and not necessarily consciously, though. And I think that slowing down and actually asking yourself those three questions can help you stop being distracted by, as I was talking about, that like shiny new, new thing. It's like, what is this? When you hear a signal, when you hear news, when you hear noisy headlines, and we all know, we all live in the same world. We all know how headlines become globalized very, very quickly. And everyone's talking about the same thing today to say, what is this? And then, so what? What does this actually mean? What's going on behind it? And what's going to happen because of it? When we start to sort of interrogate those signals that come at us all the time, and there's so many signals coming at us all the time, when we question them consciously, we can stop being so reactive and so responding to all this constant stimuli that's coming towards us and start slowing down, making more conscious choices that actually makes us more future fit compared to our competitors, whether we're in a sort of business space or our peers, if on a more sort of personal level too mm. uh, philosophical question perhaps i mean some people th seem to think that or m most of us i guess that the future just as the past is another place but i mean we're all we, we're all the time in the same place aren't we right so i mean is it fair to say that the future is embedded in the present 
Yeah, so the future is, is almost like a fantasy, just like the past is. The, yeah. As they say, like the, the past is a foreign country. The future is also a foreign country. And it's a place that we never arrive at, but at the same time, we always arriving at it. So the title of our book was The Future Starts Now. But perhaps that title should have been The Future Is Now, right? Because the future is simply the result of actions that take place in the present, which means that the present is all that matters, which is which is going to be confusing to our listeners who listen to our last conversation where we went into nostalgia and the trap of being stuck in the now but it's almost sort of moving through that to the other side and seeing that the present is all we've really got but that's not to say that we have to remain trapped in it we have to remain forward thinking so that our actions that we're taking in the only time that matters which is right now it's the only choices we get to make are moving us in a direction that we're not just having you know speed that we're having velocity you know like that idea in, in, in physics right where there's a difference between speed and velocity the one has a direction and the other just has a pace and that's that's what we have to try and separate like where are we going are we just treading water and we see this a lot i mean the world has since we last spoke been in a crisis mode so a lot of people have been kind of on that pause basis for quite a long time just reacting to stimuli reacting to wars and rumors of wars reacting to pandemics and rumors of more pandemics reacting to corruption and crime and crisis over and over again but without actually being able to step back and to actually proactively decide what what actions we can take to change that to get out of that reactionary cycle and that's and that's a bit of a luxury but it's actually a luxury available to all of us, the luxury to just take more time to think, right? It feels like it's impossible, but it becomes a huge competitive advantage. Great. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of fascinating to think about what time is in in general. And I mean, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole now, but let's talk a little bit about people, the power of people that like one of my headlines is here Mm. because I guess... uh, People are the requ- prerequisite of a bright future, aren't they? I mean, Absolutely. we need people to 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 achieve anything in this world. So um, many people say think that we are too many and and have thought so for a long time. Uh, but as a matter of fact, the problem might even might actually be that we are too few. So mm. uh, I know I, I listened to Peter Zahan. You know about him? He's another futurist. Uh, he says he talks about China, for instance, that China is soon or has already, I think, started to shrink a little bit. So, yes, this guy Peter Zeyan, he says that that China is going to collapse because of the the bad demographics they have sooner than we think. And so, what will that lead to? So, what's what are your thoughts on on this on on the number of people on the planet and and whether it's a bigger problem that we're becoming too few than that we're becoming too many. Well, what the first thing that I have to say to anyone that says there's too many of us on the planet is uh, who who's too many? Who are these surplus people? Who are you referring to that doesn't have a right or a place to be here? Because usually those people are not talking about themselves, right? Okay, so there's a rather nasty utilitarian, almost eugenicist kind of angle for anyone that says there's too many people. Yeah. I'd love to know which ones you're referring to. I think we have to call that sort of behavior out. Then in terms of the sustainability of growth, I think we have to understand that Generally, in general, evolution is about flourishing, right? And like the species that there are more of are the more successful ones. And that actually having 
deliberate conversations about reducing our future fitness, which is what happens when we actually reducing or planning to reduce the number of people in our society, whether that's a global level or at a national level, you're actually limiting your future, right? I mean, this is this is what the where the good side of futurism comes in. It's about being open to possibilities, about being open to possibilities of things like sustainable growth. Have a lot of these conversations. I think, in fact, our last conversation, we also talked about that that false trade-off. There are a lot of real trade-offs in the world. I'm a trained economist, and I'm all about the trade-offs. But there's a there's a dangerous false idea around that you have to choose between sustainability and growth. In fact, I've been speaking a lot over the last year about the different dictionary definitions of sustainability: the sustainability of a positive mindset and sustainability on a negative mindset. And on the negative side, you can think about sustaining a note on an instrument, right? Where you hold a note on a keyboard or strum it on a guitar and it sustains, but it also diminishes, right? That's 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 the sort of the negative version of sustainability, which is actually not evolutionary fit, right? I mean, things change, the world changes. Even without humans, you know, there's still climate change was going on before we arrived. And I don't know if you've looked at the long-term geographic patterns. That's not to say we haven't made things worse or changed in bad ways, but rather change is a constant in the universe right so yeah. if you are it's the only constant isn't it i mean that everything well, changes all the time yeah if you are to sustain or refrain you're actually not going to be sustainable in the long run you're going to go extinct if you're not growing and adapting to the changing environment around you so we have to get that conversation out of the picture like we have to we have to move beyond these negative degrowth conversations when it comes to sustainability we have to understand that degrowth whether you're talking about population talking about the economy talking about technological progress is not actually sustainable which is very ironic on the other hand, there is a positive way to frame sustainability, which is framing sustainability as being doing more with less, which is actually the whole journey of human and technological progress. We have invented tools and systems to allow us to expend less energy, whether that's human energy or carbon in the atmosphere, and to do more, to get more out of it. And that's a much more positive way to frame conversations around sustained growth. And in fact, that's the only way to be evolutionary evolutionary fit is to continue to change and to grow and in fact definitions of growth also are around change right in fact some of the older definitions of death was ceasing to change right so i think that that's that's always a helpful way to frame these conversations in terms of population growth, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think lots of the, the sort of scaremongers are saying there's too many of us, and there's going to be too many of us. You need to look at some of those pictures about just how unpopulated the planet is when you talk about all the ocean space and all the airspace and going under the ground, over the ground, and even into even into space if you're a sort of further further thinking, more optimistic futurist. There's plenty of space out there. There's, there's a whole universe for us to fill if we think about it, right? Yeah. So. We need to move away from those sort of scarcity mindsets. Now, I don't tend to be a sort of growth at all costs kind of a person at all. I think that there's always trade-offs, there's always balances there and all the rest of it. But I think that the, the we do need to understand is the maths here of how quickly populations can decline. If birth rates fall from three or two babies per family down to one, your population halves within every generation. And you don't have to be particularly good at maths mm. to see how that, that pans out in the long run, right? Oh, we see this happening in, in Asia right now, in Korea and countries like Korea and China. Yeah. So I'd encourage you, if you are interested in the subject, to go and look up the population pyramids of various different countries. And they used to be pyramid-shaped. Now they're like pagoda-shaped, which is quite ironic, saying since a lot of these population trends <laughs> have turned in, in the East, right? But if you look at the Japanese one and how unbalanced it is, you've got inverted pyramids that are supported by a very small base. The only way to fix that is through either sort of, you know, 
breeding again, or by allowing immigration in. And this opens up all sorts of different questions. And it comes back to the point I made right at the beginning, which is saying when people say there's too many people, they're generally talking about too many of some other group of person that they don't yep. like. Yep. And that's why we can start to see these conversations very quickly come down to the fact that there's not too many people in the world. Rather, people are wanting to defend either their own race, their own nationality. There's some sort of nationalistic or maybe even fascist kind of conversation behind that. And I think we do need to challenge these ideas. There's plenty of space out there for all the people that we have on the planet. Birth rates are turning along with education. There's many sort of long-term drivers behind that, including the emancipation of women. And you know, not all of us women do want to have just many, many, many children. And the fact that children do survive to adults. So there's many reasons why people want to have less children. So I don't think we need to be discouraging people from, from those sorts of things. There's quite a lot of natural trends that already tend in the direction of population degrowth rather than growth. But a lot of that is also to do with the, how positively or how negatively we do frame our conversations about the future. If you do not believe that the future is going to be a better place than it is today, then of course degrowth starts to make a lot of sense, whether it's on a personal sense, depending on how many children you want to have in your own family or on a national planning level, how many people you want within your within your nation. But anyway, I think the population numbers conversations is very revealing about people who advocate growth or degrowth policies in that regard and how much they respect human life and what sorts of lives they are respecting. So I know that's a bit of a sermon, but I do feel the need to sort of interrogate those those conversations because we yeah. have them all the time in the future space. And it's a very elitist subtext that comes through when we get to those points. I, I love that you're saying that. I, I couldn't agree more, actually. I'm, I'm very surprised many times when I read op-eds, for instance, where people are, I mean, intelligent people are still claiming that we are that population is growing too fast and that that is the 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 basic problem for 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 the environment and all that and it's it's totally flawed it's like i mean malthusian reasoning in the in the 21st century it's very strange but Anyway, well, we what, need more ideas, we need more opportunities, yes. we need more real sustainable growth. I mean, where do we think, who do we think are going to solve the problems of the future? Those of us that are already here, not likely, right? Mm -hmm. But every new person that's born is another sort of lottery ticket into exactly. the evolution of our species, right? We want we want more cards in the draw, not less. And <laughs> there's also, yeah, if, if you look at different continents in the world, you said very wisely here, very well put that uh, if you want fewer people in the world it's not about the people that are around you it's it's we, you want fewer of some yeah. other people in some, some other parts of the, of the world so if you look at africa for instance you're based in africa and you compare africa with western europe i mean africa is so much less populated it's much much less densely populated than western europe it's there is extremely a lot of space in africa people. and then everybody's looking at africa and, and getting scared and look look at the the birth rates in africa it's terrible what's going to happen there so i mean but africa is a continent with with the people right i mean that's where the people are going to come from in the in the future so yeah. how do you how do you look on that i mean what's happening with with africa and the african population and is that um going to be a, an advantage for this continent in going into the future well, that is a hard one to talk about because in, in general, the, the sort of societies that have been able to grow quite quickly have taken over the advantage of what they call a demographic dividend. That's when your independent population is growing at a faster rate than your dependent population. And that's critical to note here. So it's not just a case of more people mean more growth. It's rather more productive people or more people that are adding 
value to society rather than people that are essentially living off the value of society. So this is this is the same conversation around those population pagodas that have make unsustainable social contracts. We've got sort of too many old people that are dependent on a shrinking, working, productive population base. The danger in Africa, which makes it quite different to what happened in Asia and what's what happened in China first and then in India now, where they were able to take advantage of that demographic dividend window of opportunity, was that they had a, a large, productive, working age population. So you had a lot of people working in the economy at a time when you had few children. This was also, I mean, let's be honest, talk about China's sort of one-child policy. When you got a lot of parents working with a lot of children dependent on them, your population gets a bit richer. It's not a sustainable solution, but for a couple of generations that plays out. Or in India, which probably did it more sustainably, we just had a large youth population bulge that are all now taking advantage of digitization, internet, access to education and now growing their economy, right? So you have a much smaller dependent population on either end on your youth and your old age and you're unemployed. And that's where the catch is for Africa. If you have a demographic dividend, you have a large youthful population of working age that are unable to work or unable to take advantage of economic opportunity, you actually have a, a demographic sort of disadvantage rather than a demographic dividend. It is critical that, that working age population is actually working and productive, that you've got more people that are contributing to the state fiscus or to the overall economy, and there are people that are living off it, that are dependents of the state. And unfortunately for Africa, and this is not an indictment on African work ethic or, or African opportunity, this is an indictment on global society and the unfairness of the way the world's economy has worked, that we are still today actually undergoing colonization we just don't undergo colonization via sort of men with guns that come and literally physically take over your land and your physical goods. We now have sort of backdoor expropriation of wealth from developing markets due to the very unfair playing field of the way our global economy is set up, particularly talking about money, because money is, of course, a human construct and money gets its source of value from two places, from faith and from force. If you enter crypto and DeFi, you think you're very clever, but your currency is backed purely by the magic of faith and what people believe in today, they can stop believing in tomorrow. There is no way for you to force someone to believe in the value of your Bitcoin. You can only persuade them to do so. However, our global economy is based on a different sort of money. It's based on money that is backed by both faith in the governments that actually back this currency, but also backed up by a second tier sort of lever here, here being that of force. The threat of if you don't accept the value of our money, particularly our dollars, let's be honest here, then we can send men with guns to make you believe in it. And that's really a lever that's only available to the strongest in any global society. Much like the old quote went, right? The, the strong take what they will, the weak suffer what they must. This is what's going on in the world right now, right? I mean, America can cause global inflation by increasing its monetary supply and can use that manufactured magic money to buy up real resources, real resources in terms of labor critically right now, and in terms of real resources in terms of property and mineral rights, for example, from weaker economies. And weaker economies simply can't do the same thing in reverse. They end up going bankrupt. This is the huge unfairness about the way the world is structured 
right now. And unfortunately, Africa is coming of age, growing into that demographic dividend window of opportunity in this incredibly unfair global world, which means that the brightest businesses that are setting up businesses here on this continent tend to be, if they are particularly successful, they'll be backed by foreign investors. And a lot of that capital ends up leaving the continent once mm -hmm. again. And this whole sort of cycle just continues. And a lot of this is, it's hugely unfair and it's hugely difficult to break out of it. And this is something that I've been criticizing at a sort of international level whenever I get an opportunity to talk about these things, just how unfair these systems are, that we claim that we have democracy in the West, but we only have democracy for our own citizens. We don't have democracy for the citizens of the world who are impacted by our policies, which is, which is something really, really difficult to understand. The other thing that I want to comment I want to make about Africa in terms of both birth rates and growth in that in my country, in South Africa, I think the UN projections are that birth rates will fall below replacement rate by the year 2050, which is not that far off. So it seems to where, be... Where was that that's, that's going to happen Africa. In, in, in Africa? Not not across Africa, but no, no. in South Africa, which okay. is quite interesting, okay. which does which just sort of it speaks to the same sort of trends that we've seen for a long time, that you're more educated, wealthier populations. Let's be honest, South Africa is a lot wealthier than the rest of the continent, even if we're much poorer than the rest of the world. Uh, wealthier, more educated populations do tend to have less children. So the two analysts who are projecting that sort of Nigeria is going to have incredible population explosions, those are temporary trends and they are not guaranteed at all. Depending no. on how fast digitization of education manages to sweep across the continent and access to things like birth control and all the rest of it, which is already available, there's no guarantee that those population rates are going to continue. So the demographic dividend window of opportunity is still, even if, you know, the, the trends do project, it's still only a sort of 50 to 100 year kind of span that we can get to. And unfortunately, as I said, the odds are stacked globally against Africa cashing in on the same opportunities that the other developing markets that were able to take advantage of this did. China and India came of age towards the tail end of the industrial era. Africa is coming of age now in the digital era, yeah. which optimists tend to say that's a great thing, right? Because digitization is so democratizing, but it's not. It's democratizing of access to information, and it's absolutely not democratizing in terms of access to capital. And this is what various people are trying to address, doing things like cryptocurrencies and borderless cash systems and all the rest of it. But it's harder challenge to crack when you start to understand <laughs> that money is merely a thin veneer of civilization over the actual state of nature under which the earth operates, which is that the strongest, the physically strongest, the guys with the biggest armies and the biggest guns still get to tell the rest of us what to do. But does it still work like that? I mean, sounds like 19th century to me. <laughs> but um, so, so how is Africa going to solve this then? As you say, Africa is not able to to grow and to rise the way that Asia was able to do in the in the 70s and 80s, because as you said, they 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 came about. I mean, they grew at as you said at the the end tail of the of industri industrialization. So how is Africa going to? And now they're trying to be successful in the digitized economy, but but then the Western world steals that success because of the money system, as you say. So how are they going to to, to do this? How how is Africa going to to rise? in another way, in a different way than Asia was able to do. 
Yes, so that, that's just the current status. That's not to say that that's going to continue into the future. There's, there are obviously ways that we can start to address these challenges, but we have to understand where these challenges come from. And a lot of this sort of the criticism pointed at the African continent is still looking internally rather than looking at the global context within this with, with, within which this happens. Unless we're able to, to accurately diagnose the problem, we're not actually going to be able to fix it or to make choices that will break us out of these sort of vicious Matthew effect type of cycles. So one of the first things that Africa needs to do is it needs to understand that it's currently playing a game with rules within which it cannot win. And we have to change the game we're going to play if we want to succeed in the future. So there needs to be a new game that's written. And one of the things we're talking about is as like the African continent working more with itself to actually create sort of trading blocks that it can compete on a global scale. But you have to understand the game that you're playing before you can hope to, to change it. Okay, Bronwyn. So you 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 touched on uh, the issue of money here, of course, when you when you talked about Africa, and that's I mean that's one of my subjects, and and it's it it all goes together. But let's talk a little bit more about money, about money. Then it is, as you yeah. say, a belief system, and so what's happening with it? And you have said somewhere I don't remember exactly where, but that the um, I mean the dollar dollar economy, the, the fiat currency, you might call it is fear-based, whereas crypto is not. So is crypto the way the, the the transaction means for and of the people that we are going to put our hopes in, in, in going into the future? Or what's going to happen here with the money system, you think? Well, I think the money system stays kind of as it is for quite a long time. It's not something that we get to switch over from quite immediately. The world is based on actual human interactions as it is based on and on fear rather than on faith purely unfortunately that's just the the sort of reality of what we what we have and we have to accept that so i think that a lot of the crypto utopians that we speak to perhaps are missing out on that other layer the fact that we actually have to have a full social contract if we are going to fix anything going forward and a social contract has to actually provide for other people but it also has to provide security and i think that providing security is the the sort of missing app that we haven't quite figured out a lot of people talk about things like the the network state for example but i think that what we're missing out on there is not trying is we haven't actually figured out where that security layer comes in. And talking about the security layer, talking about things like policing, talking about things like governance, talking about things that actually provide us um, security against the strongest in our societies, which is something democracy has been good at, but it's something that we haven't cracked entirely. And that democracy still has those sort of flawed, um, it's, it still has the, the, the flawed monetary system underpinning it. And we haven't cracked those apps yet. So we kind of need the, the crypto of the security space if we are going to fix things. Cryptocurrency. Is it, I mean, is it, is it going to be able to develop independent of the, the, the very handsy central banks out there who want to have control over the cryptocurrencies as well, of course? Is that going to happen, you think? It, it can grow independent of the central banks, but it will not be able to replace the current system that we have. It is, in fact, a dependent of the current system that we have until it's able to replicate or create its own system around it. And that's the system that I was talking about in terms of it has to create a full social contract. Money is actually not the important thing when it comes to conversations around equality and democratizing the future. Money is still just an illusion. Money is is the symptom, but it is definitely not the cause. The problem is that we have 
power balances across our societies, right? We have some societies that are much stronger than others. And money is just a very small part of that. And we tend to think that because our monetary systems are flawed, and they definitely are, and we've spoken about this a lot, they are hugely unfair, that if we fix that, we fix all the problems. But it is a symptom. It is not the underlying cause. The fact is that we are very strange creatures as us human beings. We are competitive. We are living in that proverbial, as they call it, like the crab bucket, right? Where we're always trying to become the top of the heap. And money is actually tames us in some regards, rather than actually exacerbates the problem. And we tend to focus on the sort of this, this solution, this imperfect solution that we've devised to actually get along and work, work with and live with each other, live with the weak and the strong in one society. We tend to think that's the problem, but it's really not. In fact, money was designed actually to democratize. Well, it wasn't necessarily designed, but what it has done, whether you like capitalism and money or anything else or not, the fact is that money has actually tamed our status-seeking drives that have actually been the cause of most destruction in society, whether it's wars or raping and pillaging or all the rest of it. Because money is a proxy of power and status, but it is not implicit power and status. And what money has, unlike other power and status gains, is that there are various ways to achieve it. They are generic points, those rands or those dollars or those euros or those pounds in your wallets, that even if you were not endowed with an awful lot of them at birth, there are various ways to accumulate them using any of your sort of talents or your opportunities that come your way. That's not to say it's fair, but it is to say they are multiple paths to accumulating more status through money. Now, other sorts of status points or other sorts of power gains are much less fair when it comes to those original endowments, where when you're talking about physical endowments, things like where you're born or how literally strong you are or how powerful the nation state behind you is, those are much harder endowments to overcome. And I do like to challenge conversations around thinking that new monetary systems can fix our problems or that money is the problem. We need to dig a little bit deeper into what money is actually doing for us in, in terms of helping to create that veneer of civilization that we all get to enjoy. So when we break down those systems, much like Chesterton's fence, we need to think why we put that fence up there. It might be annoying, it might be obnoxious, it might be imperfect, it might be unfair, but what is it actually holding back? I think that these are the conversations we're going to be having over the next sort of 10 to 20 years. They won't be conversations around private money and around cryptocurrencies. They're going to be conversations around the new social contract, which is something I've spoken about for quite a few years, and specifically new ways to hold back the states of nature. Because we are swinging into a new period where state of nature is actually winning again. I mean, we have wars, we have rumors of wars, we have the rich getting richer. I mean, like we, we heard about NFTs and Web3 being the creator economy and creators getting paid fairly for their work. But I mean, like, just open up the newspapers and see the big winners of NFT brands like Nike, you know, for example, or Hermes that are making you know, lots and lots of money from these things. Because what Web3 NFTs have done, which I think is a very good case study, it's trying to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make here around money not solving all the problems, is that what Web3 as we know it and this whole NFT explosion it's done is effectively allowed us to launder intangible power that is power, status, privilege, brand identity into explicit cash. So it's opened that one-way sort of door. Now, what we haven't sort of squared the circle there is being able to use your capital to actually purchase that credit, but we're getting to that point. 
fund. What non-fungible tokens have done is they've actually made intangible assets fungible now. They've made status and power fungible. And what that has done is that it's made the powerful and the rich that much more powerful and rich and vice versa. So the biggest winners of this new sort of digitized world that we're creating, especially this ironically DeFi world that we're trying to build with the likes of Bitcoin and all the rest of it, is it's just empowered those Matthew effect cycles to go even further. So that's not to say that we shouldn't have done that, but I am predicting as a futurist, and we don't always predict, but I do kind of see the circle as kind of being put into, into play at the moment, that at the, at the last sort of what's it been now, almost 15 years since the Bitcoin paper came out, we've been talking about decentralization, breaking down down money. The next conversation that is going to crack open, that's going to force open, is about the deeper issues within our society, how are we actually going to create that next, what, what comes after the liberal world order, right? What, what is it? How do we hold back the states of nature without devolving into the Leviathan, which is always the other option? You know, there's always those two extremes that we're trying to we're trying to balance between. And more state of nature is definitely a world where it's survival of the fittest, survival of the strongest. The Leviathan is a much more controlled world, which is not something that I'm naturally sympathetic to. I'd love to live in a more free and a more flexible world and all the rest of it. But that's kind of the alternative. We don't, when we have to find a middle way between being completely controlled and forced to be fair and equal mm. and surveilled because we're able to do all of that on the one side, which I think a lot of people that, that tend to tend towards the more libertarian sort of corner of the playing fields tend to focus on that surveillance side. But we have to look at the other side too. And that other alternative is also a very dystopian world where the strongest just eat the weak at, at a, a wholesale scale. And that's that's always the balance of human of human civilization. The pendulum shouldn't land on on either way, but we need to find a new middle ground. And it's going to shift more in one direction before it pulls back in the other. And unfortunately, we overcorrect when we try to address these balances. But that's really the conversation we're going to have next. It's not the conversation just about money. It's going to be the conversation around raw strength and power and how to mitigate that without devolving into a huge surveillance state that sort of fully automated lower middle class communism as i've spoken about mm. before mm. the chinese solution <laughs> yeah it's, it's a solution right it is a solution and that's actually a stable equilibrium until you run out of people like you were speaking yeah <laughs> or until you run into the wall because of other reasons well i don't know Anyway, let's talk about the 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 of governance. You're you're into that now, and it's changing. We're seeing a lot of protests, demonstrations around the world because I mean, there's a lack of trust in our leaders in many places. Because I mean, you can of course debate what uh, why that is, but I think it's uh, to a large extent that, that people are kind of uh, I mean, they're more educated now and and they're more knowledgeable. They have a lot of information. They can see that their leaders are flawed, much clearer now than they used to. And uh, they don't like it, so they protest. And so what's happening with, with governance? Are nation states doomed? And what's happening with, I mean, in some some instances, um, in some aspects, you, you could, it might look like as if everything is getting bigger. Nations, companies, uh, I mean, we're globalizing. But on the other hand, you can see a decentralization also. And I, I know that the reason why the West became successful or many say many experts say that one of the reasons why the west became so successful in the world whereas countries like china and india before i mean 
during the, the industrialization and all that did not was that it was at the West Western Europe had this uh, small scale system or um, organization where there was competition, small scale competition. That's that made Europe rich. So what happens with all that? What happens with the nation states and the small state, small scale competition that that can make people uh, innovate and, and grow? Again, coming back to evolutionary fitness, uh, it's it's critical that we have a balance between both um, competition and collaboration, right? Like you're saying, this this was the sort of killer apps of the West. You had internal competition, particularly on the sort of capital markets and the economic markets, but you still had collaboration in that there were treaties drawn up and there was at least enough peace time to get things going. Again, that's the trade-off. You're going into a complete state of nature where the strongest win, it's a, it's a very unsafe space. It's not a safe space for growth. You have to find that balance between it. And what we are definitely seeing is there's dissatisfaction with pretty much all the world orders that we have on the table at the moment. Like we spoke about in the East, you can have the fully top-down, panopticon, leviathan-type society, but that's devolving into the more sort of negative side of sustainability, where you have this, this sustained but also actually reductionist mindset, which is not necessarily long-term fit. But on the other hand, we're kind of reaching the limits of democracy. Unfortunately, democracy is, is a good thing. It's definitely given us a lot of benefits, and we, we can see that they're the like the cartoons say, right? I mean, people don't exactly dig under barbed wire fences to escape from democratic societies. They might do that from other sorts of societies, right? They might be full of flaws, but it's definitely a better place in general to live in terms of all sorts of human flourishing metrics than the other systems we have. It's the best of the bad ideas that we have. But it's not a perfect system. And the problem with democracy is that it tends towards the mediocre. And it tends towards the low and lowest common denominator. This is why we're seeing the rise of both left and right-wing populists at the moment. Populists are lowest common denominator, entertainer slash, you know, like, like leader figures that pander to the bottom half of the bell curve. Let's, let's be perfectly honest here. It's not about one, one type of populist being better or worse than the other. This is a natural outcome of many generations of democracy, which is about mediocrity. This is, this is what democracy gives us, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there are ways to break out of that cycle. And I think that one of the, the solutions that we are going to hear more and more about is, again, this finding a balance between total decentralization and anarchy, and also that balance between a totally surveilled and top-down society, neither of which are long-run sustainable on their own. And we're going to have to start to see compromise solutions because nothing is going to be perfect. We're very imperfect creatures as human beings. The best we can do is to try to put checks and balances on all forms of power to make sure it doesn't accrue in any one particular corner. And ideas like direct democracy, we're going to hear more of. This is not the sort of democracy where you vote in polls once every four or five years and you get the lowest common denominator leader for your country. Rather, it's the sort of democracy where people get to vote on more things and have more opportunities to exercise agency and whether they can choose to exercise that agency or not. And the thing with these sorts of systems is they're going to have to in the future scale. So one of the things that I think scares a lot of people that are that do tend towards the conservative or tend towards the cynical are ideas of things like one world governments and how that often seems to be quite inevitable. Like it's inevitable that, that we sort of tend towards a very homogenous governance system. People are scared of things like the UN and the World Economic Forum and those sorts of platforms. 
But what we need to start thinking about is how we can scale checks and balances on power at a global level. Because what people that are concerned about one world government sort of conspiracy type, Illuminati type type plans forget about is that already decisions are taken that have international consequences. We spoke mm. about the dollar and how like the dollar's policy affects citizens in Africa. We don't have a vote on that. So we have to start thinking about it instead of a world, world sort of government being something that is imposed upon the citizens of the world, rather it's the other way around. How do we get individual citizens in the world to have a vote on policies that are taken in isolated ivory towers that have influence over their lives so it's almost it needs to be a ground up movement rather than a top down movement mm. to actually get more people to have a say in more issues that affect all of us going forward and there's many examples there like take the example of like putting up uh like blockers or panels into space to actually alter the the temperature on earth right i mean this makes sense if you live in a country that's being affected by global warming at the moment and you want a cooler planet but there's other people in the world that might actually want a warmer planet there's other people that would like to leave the systems alone and i'm not taking a view on who's right there but i'm saying that those sorts of choices things like like seeding rain and geo geo manipulation of various sorts affect all of us on the planet but those decisions are taken by politicians and by even non-elected bodies that most of us don't have a say over and these are where the ideas of decentralization and the ideas behind DeFi that have been attracted towards capital accumulation and extraction of value for from the stupid towards the the smart and from the unfamous and the unrich towards the rich and the famous are going to start shifting as people start to understand that the ideas behind our concepts of things like decentralization and fractal localism and all the rest of it have much more power when they're actually used over real decisions and real power and not just at the monetary layer. I think that that's something that we have to start separating in our conversations, <laughs> the difference between the real economy and the monetary economy. And as long as you're having conversations only around the monetary layer, there are so many ways for you to get scammed and manipulated. Money is a proxy of reality. It's not actually reality. And we're going to see those conversations shift back to reality. And we already have. I mean, this is something that I predicted that has actually rolled out in that I predicted the year 2020 was the year where we're going to start talking about real things again. Real things like energy scarcity and water scarcity and food scarcity. And lo and behold, exactly what inflation now. and suddenly it mattered, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like, and like, whereas last year we were talking still about fantasy things. And those conversations will shift into the politics and into the sustainability of the social contract going forward. So the new economy does need new ideas, but it needs new ideas where global citizens are going to have a vote on things that matter to them. This is how we fix the challenges that we're speaking about in Africa, for example. This is how we, we fix the challenges of things like inequality and things like sustainability. Those All those big questions come down to giving people a say over things that impact them. And this is something we've taken for granted at a domestic level, but not at an international level, which I think is quite extraordinary. How confident we are to be quite blinded to the fact that the progressive policies we vote for at home, domestically in our own little nation states, are regressive at a global level and how we manage to reconcile that cognitive dissonance is something that I think is a, is a more positive trend that we are going to unpack. That is going to be the conversation that we're going to have to have and that's how we, that's how we actually progress, I think, which is a very different conversation to that around technology and things that people are generally talking about when it comes to the future. Yeah, but more important, I think, I agree with you there, of course. And having all this, the, all these big issues as a backdrop, what is happening with human awareness and our view 
upon what a human being is? Well, I think a human being is kind of kind of what we make of it, right? None of us, none of us have the answers to those questions. But I mean, do you see uh, you know, like trends? A, do you see any changes in the in the in, in the awareness of humanity and humankind and what a human being is among people? Or yeah, that's that that is a huge question we're going to be grappling with. We haven't really touched on that today, but this is the whole question around transhumanism and all its various different angles that pull in. And as we become, we we create machines that become more person-like. And we try and make ourselves more machine-like to fit in with the algorithms that we have designed to try and try and run our lives. We are having to question those and to understand what it is that makes us us. And I think that the key thing that makes us distinct from mechanical objects or our own creations, however smart they might be, is actually a need and a desire and the wanting, right? Like we haven't we haven't instilled a wanting or a desire into the machines i'm not sure that we are going to be able to i think that that's the distinction and that's a that's a terrible thing but also the wonderful thing about being a human being is that we are dissatisfied it's also something that separates us from most of the animal kingdom now you might argue that point in that evolution takes place in both the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom too there's a constant changing and growth with and trying to survive so there's 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 a there's sort of a a desire to survive, even if it's not conscious among all life, really, that wants to succeed. But human beings have succeeded in becoming the dominant species, quite simply because, quite frankly, we want it more, right? We want things that are irrational. We want we want, and we need, and that's that's what drives us forward, and that's what distinguishes us from, from, from other species and from other objects. And I probably haven't explained that very well, but having thought about these ideas of around consciousness and around humanity and all of that quite a lot, I think that that is, that is the kind of key. And it's, uh, it's not something that can be programmed, and it's not something that can be taken away from us. It's something that makes us unhappy, but it's also something that makes us motivate it to succeed, to try new things. And it also encourages us to make a whole lot of problems for ourselves. But I think that that is really the essence of humanity, a sort of dissatisfaction with the status quo. And that is something that that distinguishes us from, from, I think, the objects and other things around us. Yeah. That that thought is a quite a big one. It'll have to be unpacked in, in various different it's ways. It's a very big one. And I have a lot of, of conversations. <laughs> I have a lot of conversations about consciousness on this podcast. So we're not going to yeah. go further down that road now, I think. But uh, would you say that the average human today, 2022, is smarter, wiser, uh, both or neither than the, the average human in 1922 or in 2022 BCE? If you compare, I um, I don't think we are smarter. I think we have more stuff, and there's more of us, so we have more opportunities and more things available to us. We have more options available to us. That's that's the biggest difference. But I think that one of the things, as a student of both history and the future, that always amuses me is how little we have really changed. How human the very first writings are, right? Even if you're looking at the hieroglyphics and the, the sort of the jokes and the the love for animals that people had back then. I know those are silly examples, but even to read like the Odyssey and you realize how little what man and what humankind wants and desires has actually changed, right? So I tend to sort of summarize it in terms of what we want is what we all kind of want is immortality one way or another, right? So whether that is literally trying to live forever, ever, whether that is trying to have children, which is why that whole sort of population growth is so deeply ingrained in what it means to be a human being, or whether it's through sort of trying to find meaning beyond our mortal lives, whether that's through... Uh, escapism into experimenting with various different mind-altering drugs, whether that's through religion or meditation, 
transcending our mortality one way or another is deeply what we desire. And I think that that dictates a lot of our behavior, which is a very animal thing to do. And we, of course, layer onto that all sorts of other desires but deeply underneath that is there's this there's this desire to keep on surviving which i think sort of loops this conversation quite neatly back to where we were at the beginning yeah bronwyn williams where can people find you now uh they can find me on twitter i'm at bronwyn williams otherwise at flux trends which is my business where we unpack trends as business strategy Okay, thank you so much for being a guest once again on the podcast. Maybe we can have a third conversation sometime in the future. Yes. Keep up your fascinating and visionary work and stay original. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.